Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Tuesday, September the 6th, 2022. It is currently 7.59 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studios located right here in Abilene, Texas. I want to begin this episode. I want to begin what possibly is going to become a series with stating things that are absolutely true. They are factual statements. They're things that no one should be able to debate. No one should be able to disagree with. I'm going to I'm going to begin this episode and begin this series with statements of fact. Things that cannot be denied unless I, I, I guess I guess someone could deny them, but they would be denying reality. I'm going to start with statements of reality, statements that are just absolutely true. They are I mean, you can observe everything I'm saying as factual. I mean, there's just no way to get around what I am about to say, all right? And I'm going to just go through a number of them. But my basic premise is this, and it's not a thesis. My basic basic statement of fact is, I've got to be very, I've got to be very repetitive of that and very dogmatic about it because uh, it's the basis of everything we're going to be talking about in this episode and in this series, all right? So I have to have to be painfully repetitive so that everyone understands that the basic premise, the basic fact that I want you to understand is this. Christianity is completely dis... Well, what would be the right way of saying this? I'm going to make sure we can say this. Let's Let's state it this way. I was I was going to say it a couple of different ways, but I'm, I think this is the best way. Christian, Christianity is completely, 100%. I'm just going to wait. I'm going to wait. I want to make sure I have your attention. I'm going to wait, make sure I have your attention. All right. I want to make sure that I completely have you paying attention to me right now, because this is the this is the premise. This is the this is the key to everything we're going to be talking about. Christianity is absolutely one hundred percent divided. Christians disagree on basically everything that Christianity has within it a absolute lack of unity. Disunity reigns within Christianity, not unity, disunity. There, there is a lack of unity. Christianity is divided. Division is the norm within Christianity, not unity, not agreement. Christianity is divided. Christianity is broken beyond repair when it comes to how much disunity there is. And I know it seems strange for me to say it's broken beyond repair, considering what I'm going to call this series and what we're going to attempt to do. I'm going to try to put forth steps to fix this disunity, to fix this division, but I've also said that it's broken beyond repair. So can there actually be steps to fix this disunity, to fix this division? Is there any hope in ever fixing it? Or is it broken beyond repair? Is it? 
Now, you may say, I no, 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 because I get Christians all the time who say, no, you're wrong. It's not that divided. There's not that much disunity. You overstate it. You're being overdramatic. Come on now. We agree on the basics. We agree on the essentials. We, we only disagree on the non-essentials. But when it comes to the main things, there is much unity. There is so much unity. It's amazing. And whenever I hear Christians say that, I really, the first thing I think about doing is having them tested for illegal drugs because clearly something is wrong. And I know that offends some people, but I just, I don't understand how you could draw that conclusion that that we are somehow in agreement with the essentials. No, we're not. We can't even agree on what the essentials are, much less agree on the essentials. Let's just take a journey really quick through some basic things that Christians don't agree on, that there is disunity, that there is division, right? And I, I know that I'm, that I'm really, 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 really overemphasizing this. But if I don't overemphasize this at the beginning of this episode, beginning of this series, nothing else I attempt to do will make any sense. I have to drive this point home, no matter how painful it may be to listen to, I have to do that. Here we go. Let's just consider this. And, and I'll, I'll try to phrase this in questions so that you'll be forced to answer for yourself. Do Christians agree about baptism? That's a pretty basic, essential thing of Christianity, right? No. There is disagreement on the mode of baptism, sprinkling or immersion. There is disagreement about on who can be baptized, someone who professes faith or an infant at eight days old. There is disagreement on what baptism does. Does it simply signify and something that has already occurred? Does it simply a symbol of a reality that is already present? Or does baptism itself bring about something? In other words, does, does baptism simply symbolize and, and, uh, and signify that a person has become saved? Or does it actually produce salvation? If a person isn't baptized, can they be saved? Now, that's just, we're just with baptism. And look at all the different disagreements. With just baptism, just baptism. Let's move to another thing, the Lord's Supper. Is there agreement on, uh, on the Lord's Supper? How should a, a church conduct the Lord's Supper? Uh, should it be uh, open communion means anyone present can participate. Should it be close communion that you have to be a member of a church of like, like-minded faith? I don't know exactly how one determines that, but okay. All right. Or is it closed communion? Only the members of the church, because I should not be giving communion to people whom I cannot exercise church discipline for. And I know what people believe. So so is it is it open? Is it close or is it closed? All right. Oh, here's a question. What does communion actually do? Does it simply symbolize a reality, right? Or does not, or I, I, does it simply symbolize a reality and it helps us remember that reality? Or does it symbolize that reality, but it's a means of grace? Now, like it's only a symbol, but somehow in partaking of this symbol, there is a means of grace that we experience. Or is it more than a symbol? Is it actually body and blood? Or is the body and blood somehow 
there, but not there. Look, there's so many. I mean, we could talk about the Catholic view, the Lutheran view. We could talk about it being simply an ordinance, simply something that symbolizes something that's a symbol that for us to remember. Others say it's a symbol, but somehow it brings about some kind of means of grace. All kinds of disagreements about that. So we've got two things, are we? Baptism we don't agree on. The Lord's Supper, we don't agree. Some believe the Lord's Supper brings about the, the forgiveness of sins. Others that it doesn't do anything. It remembers how our sins were forgiven by the work of Christ. All kinds of disagreements on that. Those are just two things. Those are just two things. Oh, but wait, there's more. How should the church be organized? Should the church belong to a denomination? Or can a church be independent? If a church is independent, what form of church government should be exercised, right? If it's an independent church not belonging to a denomination, you've already clearly thrown out a denominational authority structure. So within the local, that one local congregation, is it pastor-led, congregational-led, some kind of a blend? Is it elder rule? How, how should it be organized? We don't agree on that within Christianity. Oh, let's see. We, we can continue. We can continue on. Um, do we agree on salvation? Clear. You, you say, yeah, we all believe that you are saved by believing in Jesus. Are you sure? Are you sure we completely agree on the basis of salvation? Let me ex- explain. Do you believe that a sinner on their own can believe and receive Christ and by receiving Christ, then by their own decision, they become saved? Or do you believe that they're dead in the, that a, per, a sinner is dead in their trespasses and sin, and God sovereignly has to, you know, basically regenerate them and give them faith? We don't even agree on how salvation occurs. Is it base, basically a person's choice, or is it the sovereign work of God? Is faith something that a person can just freely exercise, or is faith something God must grant? Can a sinner just repent or does God must grant the sinner repentance? We don't agree. We don't agree on how salvation occurs. We don't even agree on the order of it, right? Do I, do, do I believe and then regenerated or am I regenerated and then I believe? We could go through all the different uh, concepts of the ordus salutis or the order of salvation. We don't even agree on that. We don't truly agree on is someone totally depraved, dead in their trespasses and sin, or do we hold to a more, and so in other words, an Augustinian view versus, say, a semi-Pelagian view? We, we don't even agree on that. Can you lose your salvation? We don't agree on that. I mean, literally, I could go all, I could spend an hour just on all the things we disagree on. I, like, it's just insane. The work of the Holy Spirit, what it does, does it, it doesn't do. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. We don't agree on the work of the Holy Spirit. Baptism on the Holy Spirit. We don't agree on tongues. We don't, I mean, on the charismatic view versus the non-charismatic view. Oh, we could, we could, literally, we could go all day. How should one interpret scripture? We don't even agree on a hermeneutic. Like there, there's not even a hermeneutical system that we, if we don't even agree on the hermeneutical system, which helps us interpret the Bible, I don't know how we could ever hope to be unified on anything. Christians don't agree on how to interpret a passage of scripture. They don't agree on the interpretation of scripture. We don't agree on how a sermon should be structured or how it shouldn't be structured. We, we I mean, literally I could go all day. So, 
My basic premise is this. Christianity is divided. Disunity reigns in the body of Christ. There is not unity. There is disunity. There is division. And I will argue that once again, I believe it's broken beyond repair. And I know you're saying, wait a minute, if it's broken beyond repair, why are you doing a series called Steps to Unifying the Church? Steps to Unity in the Church. How, how, why would you create a series like this if you're saying it's broken beyond repair? Because I tend to be not optimistic. I tend to be willing to consider other people's ideas. And a little while ago, I was minding my own business. Now, if you know me, that's something I always say to my family, that I'll walk in, something will be said, I'm minding my own business, just minding my own business, minding my own business, just leave me out of it, minding my own business. And and so my family says that when I die, they're going to put on my my tombstone, he was minding his own business, because I said, I'm minding my own business, I'm not involved, I'm not minding my own business. Going back, going back to, to watch television, going back to listen to music, going back to re- I'm minding my own business, not involved, minding my own business. Okay. So I say that all the time. And this is, I was minding my own business. When all of a sudden, I see this headline Seven Steps to Help Unite the Church of America. Whoa. There's seven steps. Now, knowing Christians and knowing Christianity the way I do, I, I think clearly the article's already in trouble. You want us to make take seven steps? You better give us one, and it better be take about five minutes, okay? Because we don't want to have to do that much work. But okay, seven steps to unite the church in America. Now, now my premise is the church is divided. Disunity reigns. Division is everywhere. And that I believe it's broken beyond repair. Now, if you were to ask me historically, when, when, when did it become so broken? Now, listen, I hold to Reformed theology. We hold to the London Baptist Confession of Faith. There's, I'm very right there in that stream. But at the same time, whenever I teach about Reformation history and the history of the Reformation, I'm willing to acknowledge the very negative unintended consequences that occurred that October 31st. I'm willing to acknowledge that Luther, his, he had maybe this intention, but the unintended consequences probably went beyond anything he could have imagined or even for, for maybe, maybe he should have been able to foresee it. Many Catholics would say he should have foreseen what the, he should have foreseen what the unintended consequences were. We could have that discussion all day, but I will say as the, you know, As the story goes, as he was nailing the 95 Thesis to the door, I don't know how many actual hammer strikes it took. And I know there's some dispute that there's no record that he actually nailed them there. I know we could get into all the historical disagreements over it. But if the story is true, that hammer, that, that just the first strike to the nail, boom, Christianity became forever disunified, boom, forever divided, boom, forever broken. And I know when I say that people lose their minds, but I'm telling you, we think about the way the Reformation was structured. Prior to the Reformation, I'm not saying there weren't issues leading up to it, and I'm not saying that there's, there was a reason to, to challenge this. I, I'm not, there wasn't a reason to challenge this, but this is kind of the way the structure worked. 
The church has the authority. The church has the authority. They, the authority belongs to the church. They can declare dogma. Go all the way back to the early church, the Council of Nicaea. Go to the seven ecumenical councils. Those churches, they, they, they made the declarations. They declared dogmatically what doctrine was, what true doctrine was, what true doc- doctrine wasn't, and, and you were anathematized for not holding to true doctrine. The church maintained the authority. Now, I know Christians say, no, 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 the Bible was the authority. Well, I, 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 let me just show you in practical everyday terms, saying the Bible is the final authority and practical everyday terms is about as meaningless as meaningless can be. And here's the reason why. I'm not saying it's not true theologically. I'm just saying practically because all these churches that nobody can agree on anything from baptism to the Lord's Supper to anything all will claim the Bible is the final authority. The Bible is the supreme authority. Yeah, we can't agree. <laughs> so, so I, I don't know exactly how that's supposed to, 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 I mean, that's just a reality that we have to acknowledge, right? So here's what happened. The church had the authority. The church had the authority to offer the dogmatic interpretation and the dogmatic declaration about what is true theologically, doctrinally, and how to understand scripture. The Reformation attempted in theory to say, no, 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 it's not the church, it's the scriptures. The church doesn't stand above the scriptures, the church is below the scriptures. The church should not judge the scriptures, the scriptures should judge the church. And everyone says, amen, that is so true, that is so right. So in a roundabout way, you could say the Reformation was to, re- to restore the rightful place of Scripture and put the church back where it belongs underneath the Scriptures. But the unintended consequence was the authority transferred not from the church to the Scriptures or re- restored the, the authority of Scripture, even though in some ways people would say that's true. The unintended consequences is that authority really skipped over the Scripture and landed right in the lap of every individual. So now every individual could take the Bible and say, thus saith the Lord, this is what it says, this is what it means, this is what is true. So whatever church you go to, you're wrong, I'll go find another church. I'll go start another church. I'll go start. In other words, you no longer had to be in submission to the authority of the church. If the church disagreed with your interpretation of scripture, then you declared the church to be wrong and you wouldn't start another one and another group and another group and another group and another group. And here we are today with thousands of Protestant groups, all claiming that their, their doctrine is true, all claiming that they're right and all claiming that their view came from scripture alone. When it, it can't all come from scripture alone because there would be agreement. So I believe the problem it was broken in the Reformation. And you and, and there was a lot of things happening culturally at that time, right? You could talk about the rise of humanism and the idea that that you know the human beings, we don't we don't have to give ourselves to a spiritual authority. We have the ability, we have the right. And there's a lot of that within the Protestant world. I'm not saying it's humanism, pure humanism, but there's the idea that I have the ability, I have the authority, I have the right. This is what it says. And if you don't say, if you don't agree with me, you are wrong. That's where it was all. That's where it, that's where it, 
happened. That's, that's, that, that's how it occurred. That's where it occurred. There's no way to get around that. And, and so guess what? There's no going back to that. There's no going back to prior to the Reformation, unless you return to, say, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, but even the Roman Catholic Church seems to be, it seems daily starting, I'm not saying it's anywhere close to the Protestant world, and I'm not, I know what Protestants always do. Oh, you think the Protestants are divided? Look at the Roman Catholic Church, and they'll look at some example. I'm like, give me a break. They are 900% more unified than we will ever be. But the way things are, have gone with Pope Francis and I, I don't know what, and I know, you know, he's kind of appointing cardinals to keep it going in that same direction. I, I, it just seems like in some ways the Roman Catholic Church is on the verge of some major issues, but we will see. But Protestants always point to that and go, they're not as unified as you pretend them to be. You know, compare it to the world of Protestantism, and it's still a million times more unified than we are. I'm not saying it's perfect, but I mean, I don't think there would ever be a perfect one. So the Protestant Reformation broke it, and that's where we are today, a divided, disunified church. Now, the article I have here wants to give us seven steps. I am not going to even give you one tonight. You know what I'm going to do. Everyone knows what I'm going to do. But I guess what I, the first thing I want to do is just really drive that point. The church is 100%. The church is completely, I know I kept stopping and pausing and stopping and trying to figure out exactly how I wanted to say it, but more more than figuring out how I wanted to say it, because I already knew how I wanted to say it, I wanted you to just really be kind of brought in and hear me say it. The church is broken. The church is divided. Disunity reigns. Disunity is the norm. That's just factual statements that cannot be denied. And I believe historically, the Protestant Reformation was a key element in what we see today. I'm saying unintended, but it happened. So I've got seven steps right here. I could read you all seven steps. I'm not going to give you the seven steps because we're going to go through these steps. I don't know how many episodes. And then I want you to give me what you think the steps are. Now, this is, we are going with the theory. Now, I believe, think of it this way. I believe factually the church is disunified, and it's, it's divided and it's broken. I think that's, that's factual. But I'm going to go along with the theory. I'm going to go, I'll, I'll, we will create a, 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 a hypothesis that the church could be brought back into unity. I, think, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't believe that. But for the sake of this series, I'm going to play along. So here's what I want you to do. And you may agree with me that you don't believe it can ever be unified again. But in theory... If you were, if you were, you know, push came to shove and you were forced to like, hey, you're not leaving the classroom until you give me three things. And this, we're going to follow this theme because I've been asking for three things over the last like week or so. We're going to keep, we're going to keep going that same direction. I didn't want you to give me three steps that you personally think would at least increase the amount of unity in the body of Christ. I, I, I don't think we can ever completely be unified, but if these three steps were enacted in every single church, every single church would do these three things, the church would be more unified than maybe it's been since before the Reformation. Three things. I want you to email me your list, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. I know this goes right along with all the other threes that I keep asking you for, okay? But three things that you think the church could do. 
all, it, would, it would require all churches, that it would be easy for the churches to do these three, three things. That, that any church could do these three things. They, they, in other words, they could go ahead and maintain their doctrine and their theology, but these are three things that the church did. It would br- bring churches closer together. I, I've got some, I think I've got some good ideas, but I'm not going to give them to you now. But I, what I want to do is at least read the introduction to this article that we'll utilize for the, length, for the duration of this series. Here we go. Seven steps to help unite the Church of America. It was Jesus himself who said every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Matthew 12, 25. Now, I do want to note that that passage says kingdom but it also says city or household. Now, the church has been divided. I, I mean, I, I, think, I think for the m- main part where it really begins to, to just splinter into all kinds of different groups is obviously after the Protestant Reformation. So if we go 1517 all the way to 2022, if we take that period of time, the church is only splintered and become more and more div- divided, more and more divisive. Then how, do, how does Matthew 12, 25 apply to that? Is Jesus just giving a general principle, but it's not giving something that's dogmatically applied to the church? Because if, it, if, that, if that stands as like, this is the way it works, the church should no longer stand. The church should be finished. According to the, this article, this that Matthew 12, 25 can be applied for the church. If we divide, if we are divided against ourselves, we will be ruined and we will not stand. And if the people of God in America will not stand, neither will our nation. But how can we unite when there's such deep divisions and differences among us? Now, again, he doesn't bother, the author doesn't bother to answer the question. You can say, well, it applies to the church and the church will not stand. Well, wait a minute. This has been going on since 1517. The church should probably already no longer exist if it's going to collapse and no and no longer stand because of the disunity. The disunity has not gotten any better. It's only gotten worse. It says unity is of no use if it's not based on truth. Well, now there, I I agree with that. Unity is of no use if it's not based on truth. (laughs) But Christians don't agree on what is true. I mean, that's a great cliche. That's a great bumper sticker. Unity is of no use if it's not based on truth. And everyone will say amen and write that in their sermon notes. But we don't agree on what's true. We don't agree on what's true about baptism. The Lord. We don't agree on what's true on pretty much. We don't even agree on how to interpret the Bible. We would, I think we would all say the Bible is true, but we don't even agree on what's the true way to interpret that truth. And we clearly don't agree on what the truth is about the Bible because we don't agree on what it says and what it means. Unity is not real. If it is founded on ethical or doctrinal compromise, unity will not stand 
if it's only skin deep. Now, I do admire the fact that this person's like, okay, we've got to have unity based on truth and it cannot contain doctrinal compromise. Well, how are you ever going to get unity in the church if no one's willing to compromise because everyone's doctrinal differences, well, there will always be unity because those doctrinal differences are, are big. So I think I want to say, how then can we come together as one in a true and meaningful way when we're so far apart on so many issues? I'm not talking here about un- uniting with professing Christians who deny the authority of Scripture and do not believe Jesus rose from the dead. They're not part of God's true church. I'm talking about genuine believers, about people who are serious about loving and serving the Lord and people who recognize the Bible as God's word. Okay, here, I love that. We're only going to unify with genuine believers. Okay, let me ask you a question. Who are the genuine believers? One is Pentecostal. They genuine? Everyone acts like T.D. Jakes. Clearly, got modalism and Sabalianism. I mean... Even his corrections of that are still problematic. Is is he a true believer? There'll be a bunch of you listening going, absolutely not. Okay, well, now you're throwing throwing out all modalists, all anyone holds to modalism, Sabalianism, anyone holds to any oneness concept is gone. All right. Oh, here's one that will ruffle some feathers. Are Lutherans? Because Lutheran theology teaches you can take a baby, sprinkle it with water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and voila, Christian. I was a Lutheran. Sprinkle the baby. Welcome, everyone, your new brother or sister in the Lord. That's baptismal baptismal regeneration. And the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod that I was a part of, taught you could lose your salvation. But at the same time, say they believe that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, which is about as baffling as baffling can be. So it's one thing to say, I'm not talking about uniting with professing believers. I'm talking about genuine believers, people who are serious about loving and serving the Lord and people who recognize the Bible as God's word. Well, someone is not a true Christian simply based on their supposed commitment to loving and serving the Lord and recognizing the Bible as God's word. You would have to define what is truly a Christian. And so then we would have to define our Lutherans Christians. Are oneness Pentecostal? Those are just two groups right from the Church of Christ. Are they are they Christians? I mean, I'm I'm here in West Texas. There's Church of Christ all over the place. Baptismal, basically baptismal regeneration and believes you can lose your salvation. Are they truly saved? Assemblies of God. Uh, I think it's in their doctrinal statement. I would have to verify because I don't have it in front of me, but I believe they believe you can lose your salvation. Well, if you believe you can lose your salvation, I'm sorry, you're really moving fast away from a salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. In fact, let me, let me verify because I, oh, uh, I do have time to look it up. Let's look it up. Okay. Let's look it up. Assembly of God, I can find their uh, oh, statements of fundamental truths. Let me see here. Statements of fundamental truths. Uh, see here. Don't think here. See, they got the salvation of man. Uh, see here. 
I'm looking. That's not super helpful. Let's do this. Assembly of God, eternal security. Okay. Um, say assemblies of God. Okay. I'm looking here. I am looking. I'm looking. All right. Okay. I'm looking. I'm going through this long article from the Assemblies of God website. Okay, a number of present-day teachers eloquently propose that once we have gained salvation, we cannot lose it. Scripture clearly refutes this uh, position. So the assemblies of God don't believe or do or believe you can lose your salvation. Now that to me destroys the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone because Christ alone makes salvation a work of man, not a work of God. And there's about 900 issues with it. Are they saved to almost basically attack uh, attack a central foundational truth of the gospel? So we got we got questions about Church of Christ, questions about when is Pentecostal, questions about Lutherans, and questions about the assemblies of God. Now I know just even bringing that up will create controversy, and people will get mad, and people will get upset. But I'm just saying, if you're going to say, "Well, we can only be unified with true believers," that's a meaningless statement until we identify who the true believers are. And he doesn't. And he doesn't talk anything about the gospel. He identifies true believers are those who serve Christ and believe the Bible is the word of God. Well, that, no, I, I think salvation is not defined by our adherence to serving in the Bible is the word of God, but to well, true true Christians are defined by the gospel. How can we unite as the force God intended us to be when we can't even get along? Speaking from my own experience, when I take a strong stand for issues such as religious liberty, the importance of marriage and family, and the sanctity of life, some believers view me as nothing more than a right-wing Republican or even a white supremacist, Christian nationalist, or an insurrectionist. When I address issues such as racial injustice and care for the poor, or when I call us to follow the example of Jesus and not repay evil for evil, some believers call me woke, weak, a leftist, a communist, a compromiser, and a rhino. I'm sure the devil gets a rise out of all of this. The more we snipe at each other, the less we will pay attention to him. Can we not do better? In the 1960s, the parents who lived through World War II and made many sacrifices for America's freedom were taken back at young people protesting the Vietnam War. The parents said, America, love it or leave it. The kids said, make love, not war. But there were actually truth on both sides. On one hand, many of the parents did sacrifice greatly to make the world a better place, in particular for their own children and grandchildren. Freedom comes at a price, and these parents were right to be concerned about the growing trend of sex, drugs, rock and roll, Eastern religion, and rebellion. On the other hand, these young people had a good reason to be concerned about the war in Vietnam, especially when they were the ones who were dying there. For what purpose and to what end? They also recognized that there had been no more, there had recognized there had to be more to life than the American dream. Yet instead of hearing one another, the generation gap grew greater. It's the same in our day, except that the divisions are not just generational. They cut across every sector of society and run right through the church. Friends of a white couple told me that they recently left a prominent multiracial church after one of the pastors made an offhand comment that if you were a Christian, you had no business voting Republican. Yes, Republican. 
Another pastor told me that hundreds of young people left his church because so many white evangelicals voted for Trump. Ironically, the pastor had a just had a justice department in his church and worked against racism. So you're so so you're damned or saved if you vote Republican, and you're damned or saved if you vote Democrat. I thought we were damned or saved based on what we did with Jesus. When the goal of seeing God's people unite around him rather than divided over political or social issues, here are some principles to put into practice. And then he goes through his seven steps to bring about unity. But what he's demonstrated is that the church is divided beyond just biblical and theological issues. The church is even divided when it comes to societal issues. Well, I'm thinking, how are we ever going to be unified if we, I think in many cases, we've completely abandoned theological and doctrinal issues, and now we're divided about everything else. I don't even know. Look, I think unity is a pipe dream, and it's ridiculous. It's not going to be there. And I'm like, but, but Jesus prayed that we would be one. Typically, what we have to do is go, no, we're not going to ever be one in a practical way. We're all one because, well, we're all part of the body of Christ. Oh, so we're one because we're in an invisible body that never meets and we never see each other. And so we can convince ourselves there's a unity that really has no practical value, but we can't even agree who's actually in that body. One is Pentecostals, Lutherans, and go on and on and on, on and on and on. Well, anyone who truly believes in Jesus truly believes in Jesus, but also has some hope in their, that, that the, the reason they believe in Jesus is because of their baptism, the, that they truly believe in Jesus, but believe that they can lose their salvation, truly believe in, I mean, like I, they're, they're, they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, we can go on and on and on. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to give me your three best suggestions on what would bring unity to the church. Three of your best suggestions. Now, you say, I don't believe it can happen. I understand that. I understand that. I don't believe it can happen. But I think that if we come up, I think we could come up with three things to say. If, if in theory, we could get all churches to do these three things, I think, I think we could be pretty close. I think. In theory. Now, some of my suggestions may be radical because one of my things would be that we make a dogmatic declaration that anything related to the charismatic movement is not Christianity and should not be accepted within the body of Christ. So uh, clearly no one's going to go with that one, but that's how much I despise uh, charismatic theology, okay? I, I, because I just think it's a cancer upon the church. But that, that's a whole different, see that, see right there, that that's where there's going to be disagreement. But I won't place that in my list of three. I won't place it in that my, in my list of three because obviously, but I think I can come up with three practical things that I think would be, I can't, I don't know how much unity it would produce, but I think it would be fascinating. Yeah, I, I think so. I think I've got three. I would love to get your three. You can email me your three. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. So in summary, my position is, and I believe this is factual. I mean, I don't even believe it's factual. It is factual. The church is 100% divided. Disunity reigns in the church. That's 100% factual. I believe this disunity, this division, began 
in a massive way. It's always, it's always been divided in some way. I mean, the church has always had its problems. But I think what occurred after the Reformation goes beyond maybe any other comprehension of what could have occurred because basically the power went to the individual and then now basically it's just chaos, 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 chaos. So I believe that disunity and division reigns in the church. That's factual. I believe it began at the, at the level which we understand today at the Reformation. And I believe that our divisions today go beyond this theological division, that they go now to societal and cultural issues, making unity even that much more difficult. But I want to hear your idea. Three, three things you think churches could do. Now, of course, you have the, the key is you'd have to get all churches to do them. But if we could say, we're going to give ourselves two years and every church will do these three things, what would it look like after two years? Or that third year? We would do it for two years and then reevaluate after the third year to see if those two year, those two years, well, no, I think you wouldn't have to wait after three years. After two years of doing things, we could reevaluate and see where Christians are. But right now, I mean, we got most Christians don't even hold to a biblical worldview. Most Christians are biblically illiterate, theologically illiterate. So I don't know how we're ever going to be unified if we don't even know the, the, the very thing that we're supposed to be con- committed to. All right? Yeah, there's our pencils dropping. All right, I got my notebook here of all the other three things that we're supposed to be working on. But there you go. All right, you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a great night. Can't wait to hear your thoughts and opinions on what I believe will is a very important subject. And, well, we'll see what we can do All right, with it. All right, thanks for listening. God bless.